We are going to be in Luke chapter 1. This morning's where we're, we're headed. Uh, it's the first week of, of Advent. Uh, if you've not been around Advent, the way we usually describe it is, is Advent sort of wraps around what we call the, the Christmas season. But the idea of, of Advent is the celebration not only of, of Jesus coming uh, the first time, but of the reality that, he, that he's coming again, looking forward to the return of our, of our King and Savior. Um, this is, this is the kind of the historical focus. In fact, many songs that we, we would sing and think of as songs about, about Jesus' first coming uh, at Christmas time are actually songs, for instance, Joy to the World, uh, written about his, his coming again, his, his second coming. And so uh, what we try and do during the Advent season is, is with a focus on the fact that Jesus did come, that Jesus came in the, in the flesh, we try and connect that to, to a historical reality that he is coming again and we live in, in sort of a, a, a tension as they did uh, before Christ's first coming. Um, I'm going to read to you first from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and then we'll dive in this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 begins like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel said, told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And, cons God. and consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her own age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called childless, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Uh, the first week of Advent is the, is the, is the focus on preparation. Um, they were constantly and continually preparing for the coming of a, of a Messiah in, in the time of, of Mary in, in, the, in the first century, uh, what we would now recognize as the first century A.D. in, in the year uh, so to speak, the calendar is not exact, but we're kind of talking about what we would say in our calendar about the year zero. They had been waiting and preparing for a Messiah to come. And in fact, it, it had been building in history since the beginning of, of time. The, the writings of, of Moses, who wrote the first five five books of the Bible under the direction of God from the time of Moses to the prophets who were those who spoke on behalf of God. They spoke of a time coming when a Messiah or a, a king, a ruler who would sit on the throne uh, uh, would come. 
And they had this expectation. They, they were looking forward to it. You need to understand that a good majority of our scripture was written to people of, of, um, of Hebrew background. It was written to, to, a, to a national people. And those people were continually and routinely under various persecution, under, under various attacks. They, had, they were never... Uh, they were never at the top of the world political uh, uh, pyramid, so to speak. And so because they were routinely under attack, because they were routinely under oppression, because uh, these things routinely happened to them, they were looking forward to a time when a king would come and he would be their king. He would be the king who would make things right. He would be the th- king who would, who, would, uh, who would empower and lift up their nation. He would be the king who, who, who made it so that the nation of Israel was no matter what they felt like and what they were, which was the oppressed nation of the world. They would no longer be the nation on the run. They would no longer be as they were in the time of Pharaoh, a nation in slavery. They would no longer be these sorts of things. And so uh, a good portion of our scripture is the Hebrew scripture written to people who had an expectation that one day a a great king would come. And this king would come. And when this king did come, he would set things right. He would establish his his kingdom. They, They saw this at various times, we would, we would suggest or say that, that the, the Hebrew scripture is a physical, a physical picture or a physical telling of the story of what God wanted to do, do in history. So at various times, they would get object lessons or demonstrations of what they expected God to do. And one of those demonstrations was God gave them a king. That king's name was David. He was viewed as, as the greatest king in, in, their, in their line. He, he led them. He led them well. He established things for them. He's acknowledged as the great king. And yet they had an expectation that even after David, there was a greater king coming. This is their expectation from Genesis to the end of the, of the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends and God doesn't speak for 400 years. Everything goes silent. But even in that silence, the people, the people were, were readers of Torah. They went, they went to, the, to the temple. They, they went to the, to the, uh, to, to, in, into the synagogue and heard the synagogue readings. And these readings told them that there was a time coming when there was a king coming and their kingdom would be established. So they had an expectation. And their expectation leads to what we're talking about, this idea of preparation. They were preparing for a time when a king might come. And so into the middle of, of history, 400 years after the close of the, of the Old Testament, we get the beginning of, of, uh, uh, of the story of the coming of that king in the New Testament. And it steps in, the story kicks off in a dusty little town that no one had heard of called Nazareth. And the story kicks off in this case when an angel shows up to a girl who is very, very young. We don't know exactly how young Mary was. What we do know is this, is that typically engagement in, in, in that time, in that place, could happen any place between the ages of 12 and 14. And an engagement, or, or a betrothal, as it might have been called, was legally binding just as marriage would be, although typically they, they did not have, have the marriage, they did not have marriage consummation. That happened at, at, at a, at a later 
later time at a later date. But the woman was promised or legally committed as she might be in a marriage to to the husband. That is the case with this young girl named Mary, who's probably then somewhere between the ages of 12, 14, 15. We don't know, but she is young. Uh, so the, the expectation of all of, of, of Jewish or Hebrew history, the expectation of a, of a coming king, all the way through, through the prophets, and then all the way through the silence, God says nothing. And I assume that many people thought perhaps God had ceased to speak. Many people wondered whether God would ever speak again. But what we know is that they had sort of uh, expectations that he would speak but when he chooses to speak, what we notice is that the, the way in which he speaks is unusual to say the least. God shows up in a dusty little town called Nazareth, which, which in, in our passage here, it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. He's that distinct about exactly where the town is because he realizes that his readers will likely never have heard of this town. So in this obscure town, dusty town called Nazareth, God decides to speak again after not having said anything for 400 years. And what he is about to say will be the most significant of things he has yet said. He says, Mary... You're about, <laughs> the angel shows up and says to, uh, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph, the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel said to her, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. What happens is, is that God chooses to again speak. How does he speak? He through, speaks through an angel. Who does he speak to? He speaks to a girl who's someplace probably between the ages of 12 and 15. What does he have to say to her? He says to her that she is favored. This is, this, is, uh, this is significant, but it is also shocking. And one of the things I think happens sometimes for us in our Christian walks is that we have too much familiarity with various passages, too much familiarity with, with Scripture, and so we do not uh, live in sort of the shock of what has happened. And so let me just point out to you again that an angel has showed up because we have read scripture, because we believe this to be true, we also sometimes believe this to be normal or regular. That is not the case. This is shocking. This is, this is, this is mind-blowing. This is, this is inconceivable. It, even in the time of Mary, we know this by her response. An angel shows up to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, "'Greetings, favored woman.'" I want you to think what would happen to you. I want you to put yourself in, in that place. If you were sitting wherever you were sitting, doing whatever you are, are doing on a regular day, perhaps you're at your, your kitchen table having coffee, perhaps you're doing what, uh, what it seems uh, most of us do nowadays, you're on your, your device looking at Facebook, you're doing whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an angel appears to you, and the angel says to you, greetings. Now, I think in response to that, Mary's response is pretty measured, because if an angel shows up to me and says, hello, I might say, ah, right? Reminds uh it's appropriate at this point uh, to point out the the uh, the joke. There's there's two muffins um, in an oven. 
One muffin says to the other, hey, how you doing? The other muffin says, ah, a talking muffin, right? That might not be exactly how that joke goes, but I pointed out to say that there is a certain unusualness. The muffin that screams is the muffin that's correct. Muffins should not be talking. I point that out to say that if an angel shows up to me and an angel says, hey, Dave, how you doing? I'm going to scream. And then if I come to you and I say, hey, I had this situation earlier today. An angel showed up to me. We had a conversation. Your response is probably not going to be, well, praise the Lord, right? Okay? Like maybe some of y'all grew up in a church background where angels showed up and y'all can say praise the Lord, but I grew up Baptist and angels don't show up to us. And so if a Baptist dude says an angel showed up to me, another Baptist dude's going to say, we need to take you someplace. Let's go for a little ride. And you're going to get me in your car and you're going to drive me down to a place that can help me with that. And the place that can help me with that is not going to be a church or another pastor. You're going to bring me to Pine Rest because angels don't just show up to people. It takes a pretty significant event in the history of things for an angel to show up. What is that event? The event is the event they've been preparing for for all of human history. And the event is this, is that God at the right time in the right place in history was going to send his Messiah and his Messiah was going to in fact make all things right but it was going to be in an even different and more powerful way than even the readers of of the scripture than even the prophets at a lot of times fully comprehended they spoke but they didn't see fully that's what Hebrews told us but God indeed was going to send his king he reserves angels for things like that The angel shows up, shows up to a virgin whose name was Mary, says, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. I want to point out to you how Mary responds to that, but she was deeply troubled by this statement. Bless her, Mary, it doesn't say, and Mary was deeply troubled by the fact that an angel had just spoken to her. She, in her wisdom, is deeply troubled by what the, what the angel has just said. She's troubled by the fact that he said, Greetings, woman, you're highly favored. She's, she's troubled by that. And I want to point this out to you because we're going to focus this morning on this idea of favor in, in this passage. But it's going to be important that we notice that favor in our cultural way of speaking about it seems to be different than the biblical way of speaking about favor. I hear people a lot of times speak about favor um, both inside the church and those who are just sort of, sort of a tiny bit connected to the, to the church. But I still hear people say, I've got God's favor on me this morning. I encountered a, a, a gospel song this week singing about favor. And it was a beautiful song musically. But the idea that, that seemed to be presented, the idea that seemed to be there is that Favor is that thing that makes us want to jump up and click our heels. And favor is connected with the American concept of success. He who is favored will be successful. So to be favored is to be wealthy. To be favored is to be attractive. To be favored is to drive the nice car. To be favored is is to have the most amazing husband. Uh, To be favored is, is to have everything your mind can conceive of and dream of because that is favor. And so I hear people go, I'm just favored. What they mean is they've had an extraordinary run of good luck. 
because uh, though I don't believe in good luck, the way in which they use favor is, is as a cultural colloquialism. They, they don't mean favor, I don't see, in the way that the, the text says it. Because when I encounter people experiencing favor, whether they're, they're posting it on Facebook or in person, what they mean is, is that I have been given all the things that I have wanted and I have dreamed about. And so success and favor in our culture are connected. Success and material blessing in our culture are connected. Uh, these things are connected, but in the passage, I don't see that connection because what I do not see typically is a person that says, I have good news. I have been favored by God. I am deeply troubled. Mary is deeply troubled, and I think she's right to be deeply troubled at the favor of, of God, which is not to say that, that, that she wants to reject the favor. It's not to say that the favor of God is bad. It's to say that in her soul, she realizes that the favor of God must be something different than the American definition of blessing or success. Mary is favored. She's deeply troubled by this statement. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found Favor with God, he says it again. Now, I want to point out to you then what happens when favor descends on, on Mary. We already talked about this, is that Mary is someplace between the ages of 12 and 15. Someplace in there. God's favor on Mary was going to result in Mary becoming pregnant. That pregnancy was going to be a pregnancy from God. So it was going to happen supernaturally. This supernatural pregnancy from God was going to be because the spirit of the living God overshadowed her and made it so that she would become pregnant with, with God. But I want to point out to you this reality, that for a 12 to 15 year old girl who is unmarried in any culture, to discover that you are, that you are pregnant seldom feels like the American definition of success. Especially so in the time of Mary, because... For a woman in Mary's time who is legally betrothed, so she's legally obligated to, to Joseph, she has a legal obligation to Joseph. For her to be found pregnant at that time would mean one of two things. Would mean that Joseph had consummated this marriage before the time, so he had sinned, and so he would be dishonored. Or it meant that she had cheated on him, so she had dishonored him. Both of those, those things uh, would have been the first thing that came to anybody's mind. You know what wouldn't have been the first thing that came to anybody's mind? Well, she seems like a good girl. She probably got pregnant without having sexual relations. That's, not, that's probably not the first thing that comes to anybody's mind. I want to remind you of this because, again, we normalize things that in Scripture are not meant to be normalized. They're meant to be mind-blowing. And one of those is, is that the virgin should conceive. She did conceive, but the reaction of the people, if you go around, go do, do a survey with, uh, with the people in our culture and ask them how many believe that virgins can conceive and take Mary out of it, do that survey. The number's not going to be high, is it? That's not going to be a, a, an overwhelming survey. Do this. Go to the fiancés of young women. Go to the fiancés of young women who have become pregnant without the help of their fiancé and ask them, do you believe, fiancé, that it is likely that, that the person you were engaged to became pregnant? Through, through supernatural means. 
They're going to say no. And I want to point this out to you because what has happened then is that God's favor on Mary immediately puts her not in a culturally advantageous, not in a culturally successful place, but puts her in a dangerous place. It puts her in a scary place because Joseph either has to, is going to be looked on as though he dishonored her or Joseph is going to assume that she has cheated on him. Now, an angel is going to show up to Joseph and fix that, but it's not going to fix the cultural reality is that the assumption is not going to be, well, Mary's so nice. It probably was just a virgin birth, right? Because we talk about virgin births because we know of one. People did not talk about virgin births. This is the one in history, Right? This is the one that happens. And so it's a dangerous situation. Joseph, to his, to his credit, decides results. He's going to divorce Mary quietly so that he can save her the shame, save her the pain. It is dangerous in, in the physical, social, every sense for her to, to be publicly divorced and publicly, publicly shamed. Uh, it, it, is, it is physically dangerous. It is all of those, those things. So Joseph is going to divorce her quietly, and Angel convinces him not to. But our point this morning is simply this, is that God's favor in the immediate moment for Mary meant that she was going to be a social outcast. It meant that she was going to be a social pariah. It meant that people were going to believe all kinds of things about her that were not true. It meant, that, uh, that, that it meant struggle. For those uh, of you who have had, uh, who have had babies, which... Uh, uh, which does not include me, obviously, but I, I've seen the, 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 the process and the struggle for more. It meant that she was going to carry a baby for, for nine months. And to carry a, carry a baby is a wonderful thing, but it is also a struggle, especially when you feel like, like there's, a, there's a social pressure, all of these sorts of things. The baby that she carries, the baby that she's going to give birth to is going to be the, the product of her and the God most high, she's told. And so the pressure that's being put upon her is that, Mary, you're going to be a mother, and you're going to be a mother to the Son of God. You're going to be a mother to the heir to David's throne. You're going to be a mother to the one of whose kingdom there is no end. These are not definitions of things that are easy. These are not definitions of things that we use in our culture to define blessing, but rather God's favor seems to be Mary. You're going to be a part of my plan, and it's going to be a struggle in a lot of different ways. We don't want to rush ahead, but if we could remember how this takes place. Mary and Joseph, Joseph decides not to divorce her, decides not to send her away. He does stay with her. They have to travel to Bethlehem. The baby's born in, 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 a, in a barn, lies in, in a manger. Immediately after that, the kings of other places set out to try and kill him. So he becomes a refugee on the run from a madman king. He's going to grow into adulthood. I don't want to ruin the end of the story for you, but this Jesus being born is going to happen in history. Uh, I'll, I'll say it this way. Noah asked me, why do we have a cross behind the manger? It's Christmas. We have a cross behind the manger because without the cross, the manger doesn't matter, right? Jesus had to be born so that he could die, so that he could rescue us. But this is the child that Mary is going to be the mother of. At every place, at every moment, there seems to be struggle. Mary is going to be there and see her son hung up on the cross. 
Mary's going to be there to see her son bleed. Mary's going to be there to see her son die. Mary's going to be, be around when she watches Jesus say things and be abandoned by all of his followers. As a mother, and, and I can say this even as a parent, to experience that kind of struggle with your child, to experience struggle where your child is experiencing struggle, even if an angel told you it was going to happen, that is not the American definition of success. It is not the American definition of favor. It is something altogether different. Now, what then was God's favor to her? God's favor seems to be this. The angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It seems to be that to find favor with God is to be allowed to participate in the plan of God. God's plan from the beginning of time, the beginning of history, was to reveal and send his king, his Messiah. And so for Mary to be favored of God meant that she got to participate in the revelation or the revealing of who the Messiah was and the coming of the Messiah. Quite literally in her sense because she gave birth to the Messiah. The Messiah is born of her and revealed in that sense. She gets to be involved in the revelation of the kingdom. Because she is involved in the revelation of the king. She reveals the king. That is different than how we define favor. But that does seem to be how scripture defines favor. God has a plan. And she is favored because she is allowed to participate in that plan. In her case, it's the revelation of the king. I'm sending the king. They had been waited. They'd been preparing. They'd heard nothing for 400 years. They didn't, they'd misinterpreted the prophets. They didn't understand what was coming. And here, in a dusty town named Nazareth, an angel shows up and says to a girl somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15, I'm going to put the Son of God inside of you, and you're going to give birth. And when you give birth, what you give birth to will be the king, and he will sit on David, his father David's throne, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will know no end. Apparently, to be favored of God is to be allowed to be involved in the revealing and the revelation of what his kingdom is. Mary asked the angel, I think, a great question at that point. She says, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, and consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she conceived a son in her own age, and this is her sixth month for who, her who was called childless, for nothing is impossible with God. She says, how, is, how can this be? This favor you're talking about that involves me carrying a child, that involves me raising a, a child who is, who is the king. This, this favor you're talking about involves me raising the one who sits on the throne of his father, David. How, how would this happen? Because God will make it happen because he's God and nothing's impossible. Now, I get that, that we, in hindsight, go, well, it must be somewhat exciting to learn that you're about to give birth to, to the one who sits on David's throne, true. 
And yet we know even further from, from hindsight that it, at various moments there, there, were, there were doubts and there were misunderstandings and they didn't understand what it meant to sit on David's throne. And in that moment, what can you understand? And you don't know what it means. And you just had the most, most mind-boggling thing said to you. And I want you to think back if you can think about what it means to be 12 to 15. And consider this. This is to be favored by God, that God chose <laughs> through, through, the, through the body of a 12 to 15-year-old to favor her by allowing her to give birth to he who would occupy the, his father David's throne, he whose kingdom would have no end. I still think, I still say that that is a very different definition of favor. And if I'm Mary, the fear continues to overwhelm me. Even if the angel said, don't be afraid. Um, I feel like that's one of the most hilariously ironic things in Scripture when an angel tells you to not be afraid. Right? There's all kinds of things that could tell me not to be afraid. The appearance of an angel might make that difficult. And yeah, I want you to catch what Mary's response is to all of that. Mary's response is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel leaves her. Mary's response to God's favor, and I hope that you see that we pointed out that God's favor does not mean, uh, mean Lamborghinis and, and, and mansions on South Beach. But God's favor in this case means a lot of struggle. God's favor in this case is going to be a lot of pain. God's favor in this case is going to be a lot of worry. It's going to be worth it because she gets to participate in the coming of the king. But it's going to be all of those things. And if I'm somewhere between 12 and 15, I'm freaked out. And my response is in line with that. I don't know what I would say. And Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. She chooses obedience to the call to be favored of God. The question then becomes for us, if God should choose to favor us, and the favor that God chooses to bestow upon us looks nothing like the favor which I read about or hear about on Christian TV with the you know, rambling people sitting in gold chairs talking about how they're favored. If, if God's favor looks like God's favor looked in Scripture, and God's favor looks anything like the favor that God gave Mary, what will our response to that be? What will it be if God should choose to favor you? And I want to say it like this. I'll, I'll go one step further and say, I believe that if you are a Christ follower, that God has favored you very much in the same way that he has favored Mary. Now, Mary got to be the revealer of the king. She gave birth to the king. She gave birth to the one who, sat, uh, who sits on the throne of his father, David. But I want to point out to you verse 33. He says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. If the kingdom of the one whom Mary revealed has no end, then you, as followers of Jesus, are, are followers of that same king. 
And if he is the king, he's the one who reigns and sits upon the throne forever. If he reigns, and I will confess you that it is a bedrock belief at crosswinds. It's a bedrock uh, uh, teaching of scripture. We believe that Christ sits upon the throne and he does reign. 1 Corinthians says, And Christ shall reign until all enemies are placed under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. But it says that he reigns. In Hebrews it says that, that Christ is reigning. And we do not yet see everything as submissive to him. But it does not, does not mitigate his reign. We believe that Christ is reigning. We believe elsewhere. It says in Luke, from the time of John the Baptist till now, the, uh, from the time of the prophets till John the Baptist, the law was preached, but now the kingdom is preached, and the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. We believe in the reality of, of a kingdom that is forever. If it was Mary, Mary's favor was to reveal the king, then those of us who come after and encounter the kingdom, we are the king through Jesus in that we meet him, we encounter him, we're saved by him, we're rescued by him. If Mary revealed the king so that we could know him, in knowing him, it becomes our job then to be favored by revealing the kingdom, the rule of that king. How do we do that? We do that by doing what Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. I want to suggest to you that we, as followers of Jesus, acknowledge him as the rightful heir to the throne of David. We acknowledge him as the one who rules over the house of Jacob. We acknowledge him as the one who shall reign until all enemies are placed under his feet and the last enemy is death. We acknowledge Christ as the king. We acknowledge that in coming and in going to the cross and in resurrecting, he has been anointed by God. He has been revealed by God. He has been shown by God to be the king. We do acknowledge that there's coming a time when the kingdom shall be consummated and the king shall be coronated and will sit down at his victory dinner at the same time we would say this the victory is not in the balance we have no fear that he might lose we have no inkling that he is down by anything we live in the time when we are playing out the last seconds on the clock because the king has been victorious over sin. The king has been victorious over death. The king has been resurrected. The king has ascended and the king has promised that he is coming again. That is his second advent. But between his first advent and his second advent, we are his kingdom people. If he favors Mary in the revelation of the king who is Jesus, if you know that king, then you are also favored to be revealing the kingdom. Are you living in obedience to that kingdom are you saying to god are you saying let it be done to me according to your word what does it mean to reveal the kingdom i am convinced that we as kingdom people we as Jesus followers, we as acknowledgers that Jesus is king. Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a square inch of the universe over which Christ does not rightfully cry. Mine. All of the universe belonging to him. As we as the people who acknowledge that, we as the people who submit to that, we submit to his rule. It means that the highest order of government or the highest order of rule in our life is Jesus Christ. We obey and we submit to him no matter what. That means when scripture gives us ethical behaviors that seem to be in counter to our cultural behaviors, we go with scripture, not our culture. It means when our culture says, you don't really have to act like that, you don't really have to do it like that, this is no big deal, we say, but our king says that it is.
It means where injustice happens in our culture, we, the followers of Jesus, should rush in and try and establish justice. Why? Because God is a God of justice. Because God desires that justice happens. Because God is not content to watch people sit in injustice. Some people would say, well, isn't that a focus? We should just preach the gospel. I know of no gospel in which God is not just. I know of no gospel in which God in his righteousness, righteousness does not desire justice to be declared. It is our job then to live out Jesus in every facet of our life, in our jobs, in our homes, in our marriages, uh, uh, in our schools, every place we go. It is our job to cry out on every level that justice might be done, that mercy might be shown, that the ethics of the kingdom might be lived out. It is our job, no matter what the, the rules of your workplace are, no matter what the rules of your school are, no matter what the rules of, of, of our nation are, our job is to rule is to, is to follow the first order king, the first order ruler. We are followers of Jesus, not of the workplace, not of the presidency, uh, uh, not of the principle. We are followers of, of Jesus, and so that might be revealed to be different. And I believe when we do that, what happens is we become revealers of the kingdom. And when the kingdom is revealed, people come to the king. This is how we've been favored. Sometimes it's not popular. Right? To do right in our culture, to say that this is, this is sinful, this is wrong, this shouldn't happen. It is not popular to do that sometimes. And yet we are followers of Jesus and we have been favored with the revealing of his kingdom. Let me tell you some stories of people who, who have lived this out. In history, this has been the way that followers of Jesus lived. And so I don't know if you know the story of Corey Timboom. Uh, it's a very... A uh, very uh, uh, famous story, Corey Timboom was a Dutch follower of Jesus during the time in which the Nazis were coming and trying to, to put to death uh, uh, Jewish people. Her father, uh, her father had a shop. They built a hidden room in their shop and they hid Jewish people from, from being assassinated by, by the Nazis. At, at one point, they, they come in and they discover and arrest them for hiding them, though they don't find the people that they're hiding. And they take Corey Timboom and they put Corey Timboom and her sister and others in, in jail. They make her testify before them. And one of the things in her testimony comes up is that she has been involved in caring for and loving on the mentally ill. And the Nazis at this, not, not the mentally ill, the mentally disabled, uh, the Nazis at this point laugh at her and tell her it's stupid. Why would you stand up for the mentally disabled? Because the Nazis for years and years and years and years and years had been killing off the mentally disabled. They did not view them as important. Corey Timboom said to them, because in the eyes of God, the the mentally disabled is every bit as important as the watchmaker or anybody else. I will stand for them. Corey Timboom is eventually released and she goes on to what? She goes on to a worldwide demonstration and a worldwide ministry where people come to Jesus. Why do they come to Jesus? They come to Jesus because God favored Corey Timboom with revealing his kingdom. How? Through the struggle of going to jail, through the struggle of going to a concentration camp, through the struggle of a court trial, through the struggle of all of those things. She lost family members in the camp. People died, but God favored her. How? She revealed the kingdom through her actions. This is the history, by the way, of the Christian church. Christians are, are famous for, for, for behaving like this, for living out the values of the kingdom. 
So God, in his wisdom, favored the early church with revealing his kingdom by caring for the poor during plagues. It so happened in the, in the, um, in the 300, so about 300 years after Christ. Christianity is advancing, but it's still illegal all over. People don't like this, this religion. They view it as, as a huge problem. But then a plague hits. And this is what Eubius wrote of what happened after the plague hit. There's people dying all over. The, the pagans or the common people who didn't know Jesus didn't like to go near the bodies for two reasons. One, they had the plague, you could get sick. Two, they had a religious uh, superstition about dead bodies that didn't allow them uh, to, go, to go near it. Eubius wrote of the Christians, though, all day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to the burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and they distributed bread to them all. The Christians became famous because when others rushed out, the Christians rushed in. See, the favor of the kingdom allows you to do that. The favor of the kingdom reveals the, the king. We know who rules. We know how the story ends. We're, we're living in this time when, when the clock is, is running out on history, but we know how it ends. Eubius was a, was a Christ follower, I believe, who wrote a history of the church. But this one's more interesting. Uh, this, is, this is Julian. Julian was a leader of pagan priests. Julian did not like the Christians, but he's observing the same thing. This is what Julian said of those same Christians. He said, when it came about that the poor were, no, uh, were overlooked and neglected by the priest, then I think the impious Galileans, that's us, the Christians, I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. Here's what he says. Julian sees the Christians, they're out there caring for the sick. They're out there caring for the poor, and they're doing it to their own detriment because Christians certainly were going to become sick and die themselves as a result of this. Julian sees it, and he's like, those Christians, they're tricky. I think they're doing this because they want people to follow their Jesus, right? He thinks that they're trying to be tricky. Then he says this, they not only support their poor, but ours as well. How dare those Christians care for our poor? What are they doing? All men see that our people lack aid from us. Julian's ticked off. He says, hey, look at those Christians. They're over there caring for our poor, and it's making the people notice that we're not helping them. How dare they? So Julian, Julian has this idea. He says, why don't we do this? So he tries to organize the pagan priest. He gets the pagan priest together and tries to imitate the Christian's charity in order to bring about a revival of paganism in the empire. The problem was, for the Christians, it was a genuine, authentic outflow of the fact that they knew the king and they were revealing the kingdom. For the pagans, it was just an attempt to get people to sign on and it didn't work. It fell apart. Because at the end of the day, the pagans still died apart from Christ. At the end of the day, the Christians went to be with Christ. See, this is the history of the Christian faith. And what I want you to understand is that, that we, must, we must never separate word and deed in, 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 our, in our, um, our walk with Christ. But our word and deed should be so consistent that the revelation of the kingdom and our king is made clear. This is the favor of God. We get to be revealers of the kingdom. Will there be struggle? 
There was for Mary. Will there be pain? There was for Mary. Will there be, be sickness? There was for Mary. There was for the early Christians. Will there be prison time? There was for Cory Tim Boom. Will there be struggle? I, I assume that there will. But the favor of God is this, that we get to reveal the kingdom. And in the revelation of the kingdom, the king is seen. And people come to know him. And there is no greater favor than being allowed to introduce people to this Jesus that we know. That this Jesus that we love. That this Jesus that rescued us. I want to close uh, with lyrics from a song by a woman named Majin Thurman. Uh, lyrics that I just recently discovered, but they, they spoke to me as I was considering this. What is my, my call? What does it mean to be favored? I praise God that I've been favored to preach the gospel. I praise God that I've, that I've been favored to, to, to live the gospel. And yet in the, midst of that, in the midst of that favor, we live in a reality that we don't know what's going to happen in the times in our country. We don't know how darkness will spread. We don't know any of that really. And yet we still get called. And maybe the favor in our life will look a lot like Mary's. Maybe the favor in our life will look like all of the early followers of Jesus who were put to death for it. I don't know what the favor will look like for us. All I know is that, that favor... Favor is the, is the joy of being able to reveal the goodness of the king. Majin Thurman wrote this, and I think it reflects what it means to be, to be called, to be favored by God, to reveal who he is. He, she said, there will come a day when God will be our light, and the dark of night will be sent to its grave, and there will come a time when we will live forever in a city that will never pass away. Oh, how my soul yearns and even faints. But until that day comes, I will go and warn the darkness that the light of Jesus Christ has overcome. And until that day comes, I will speak to all injustice that the moment of its ending has surely come. Oh, the day will surely come. We who are his church must prepare his coming and go and tell the nations of his worth. Let us give our lives to the calling that is on us to bind up every wound and every hurt. Oh, how my soul yearns and even faints. But until that day comes, I will go and warn the darkness that the light of Jesus Christ has overcome. And until that day comes, I will speak to all injustice that the moment of its ending is sure to come. Oh, that day will surely come. You are favored of God if you know him to be sent to declare to the darkness that the day of its ending will surely come and the light of Jesus Christ has overcome. It happened at the cross. It was proven at the resurrection. He's coming again. And you, if you follow him, are favored to reveal the king and his light. And the darkness is already beginning to fade as Christ breaks in further and further to history. Pray with me. Jesus, may we be revealers of your kingdom, revealers of your kingship, revealers of who you are. May we live out our calling to go and warn the darkness that the light of Jesus is overcome. At the cross it overcame. At the resurrection it overcame. And at the coming again when the trumpet sounds and we meet you in the air to bring you down to establish your kingdom forever. 
at your coronation, all darkness will be wiped out. But in these moments, let us declare into every corner of the universe that darkness has no right to be any place where the light of Jesus comes. Let us be revealers of you and your kingdom. You're a great God. In your name, amen.